Hello, and welcome to the second podcast of InfoSec Sync, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by the Van Dyke Technology Group. At Van Dyke, their work is focused on the performance and security of information systems of national impact. Optimize security, optimize performance. Experience the Van Dyke difference and visit them on the web at vdtg.com. Also brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And now it's time for Security Stories of the Week for the week ending September 12, 2014. Last week, we talked about the iCloud breach where hundreds of intimate celebrity pictures were stolen and released on the web. If you remember, these included celebrities such as Jennifer Lawrence and Kate Upton. At first, it was thought that Apple had a vulnerability in its iCloud but later investigation proved that the attacks were brute force where the attackers used phishing, social engineering, and took advantage of the celebrity's simple password creation. Apple states that it will soon initiate emails and push notifications when someone tries to change your password for your iCloud account or tries to upload your backed up account data to a new device or log into your account for the first time from an unknown device. These new security features are in addition to the already established emails you receive when you change your password or when you log in from a new device. However, as we stated last week, ensure that yourself and your friends and family are using strong passwords to include lowercase, uppercase, and special characters. And don't forget to constantly change your passwords. Friends let friends change passwords often. <laughs> That's right. Is that correct? That's true. So another thing that I heard, uh, Nick, was basically that Apple was uh, instituting two-factor authentication. Is that correct? That is correct. So that's another um, hot topic or you know, uh, hot-button topic when it is, comes into security. Um, basically, you want to have those two-factor uh, authentication methods in place, and then you want to define the authorization behind that, right? So when somebody gains access to something, what they can actually do and, and limit the amount of damage. That's right. Something you know and something you have. Yep, exactly. And then something you are, which is the Touch ID sensor. Right. Yeah. Nice. So uh, something I want to report on this week is uh, copies of the Elkomsoft ePPB tool. So last week we kind of talked about a law enforcement tool um, being used, you know, or allegedly being used um, in this type of attack. And so I basically looked at, you know, what tools are out there, right? And, uh, you know, what people are reporting on for, for tools to, to break the passwords um, on the phones. And so in the underground, it's quite easy to find forums where black hats can sell images stolen from unaware Apple iCloud accounts and the threat actors. Uh, used to compromise cloud storage services using software-defined 
uh, designed with the specific intent to gather pictures online from poorly protected accounts. So all this is concatenating pictures, right? So if I'm an attacker, why would I want so many pictures? Why want so many pictures to create fake accounts? That's right. Or uh, use them for phishing emails saying, hey, I'm so-and-so. Click on me. Yeah, so you know, we're always seeing that this could be used um, in a stage attack. And, uh, you know, some of the celebrity images were first circulated on Anon IB, which is, you know, an anonymous image board for posting stolen, uh, any stolen pictures, anything like that from a celebrity. And then they explained it in a blog post published by Wired uh, through the forum. There offer many applications for iCloud ripping or downloading the entire contents of account. So uh, this is abusing that backup. Uh, capability that that iCloud allows you to have. We we kind of hit it on the head last week. You can emulate a legitimate box or a legitimate desktop with iTunes installed on it, and actually pull down um, an entire iCloud library. It, that's that's pretty scary. So um, one of the software's most debated to be used is the Elkomsoft phone password breaker, which allows the attacker to download the data from the iCloud backups and. Alcomsoft CEO Vladimir Katalov. The software is a forensic tool sold to the government um, or government agencies for legitimate uses, and the company doesn't exclude that the copies uh, have been offered for sale in the other ground. But that's the thing. They're just giving out something for that to do, um, the nefarious activities. They're not necessarily condoning it, right? So um, a few hours after the data leakage, a GitHub online repository uh, published a Python script that be, could be used to brute force um, the iCloud account's password, explain the vulnerability in the Find My iPhone um, service, and then an attacker could use the script to repeatedly guess the passwords in an attempt to discover the right one. Combining the use of the tool with the EPBB application, anyone can imperson- impersonate an iCloud user and download the full backup. That's probably what happened in the case with the um, the celebs, the celeb pictures that were leaked. So. Again, in retrospect, I mean, EPBB doesn't exploit flaws in the Apple services. The use of such tools on one one account, the Apple ID, you know, once the Apple ID and password have been compromised, that allows the attackers to access the data stored in the backup. So really, it's just weak credentials that are used on the front end. So, you know, a hacker that knows the Apple's, uh, the victim's Apple credentials could recover the data, set up a new device, and restore it with the targeted account's iCloud data. So, um... You know, in retrospect, the hackers behind the leaking of the celeb pictures could have used a tool like this, uh, and they had access to much more data like SMS, address books, which could allow them to conduct further targeted attacks. Apple users are advised enabling two-factor authentication um, so that they can ensure further protection on the accounts. We'll post up in the show notes some some uh, methods um, to use when doing the two-factor authentication, how to enable it, right? So like we said last week, you become the trusted information security advisor for the household. So when they come to you and say, hey, how can I be more secure? You know, uh, I don't want to end up like one of these celebs, right? You can then recommend uh, the two-factor authentication. So we'll post that up there. Awesome. On Tuesday, a list of almost 5 million combinations of Gmail addresses and passwords were posted online from a Russian Bitcoin forum. Google quickly moved to calm user concerns and confirmed that the majority of the credentials wouldn't be very useful to those aiming to hijack accounts with the information. Google's spam and abuse team took to a company blog to address the credential dump. 
Google stated that during this week, it had identified several lists claiming to contain Google and other internet providers' credentials. After looking into the incident, however, the company found that less than 2% of the exposed username and password combinations might have worked for attackers. Furthermore, its automated anti-hijacking systems, which include two-step verification to secure user accounts, would have thwarted many of fraudulent login attempts. It seems that many of the passwords were taken from websites where users use Gmail addresses to register, according to some of the leaks victims as well as security experts. For example, someone might have signed up for a website with the username myaddress@gmail.com and the password mypassword. The list exposed this week makes it look like mypassword is the password for the Gmail account itself, but the user's actual Gmail password might be totally different. Hey! Hey, look who hey, just, look who just came in. in. It's Vic. Vic from VicTech. Hey, man. What's going on, guys? How's it going? Doing well, doing well. All right, uh, so we're just getting into some Gmail stuff right now. Um, Vic's probably going to be chilling with us for the rest of the show here. Um, but uh, that that's actually pretty interesting, Nick. I mean, it's uh, you know pretty bad that legitimate Gmail addresses and passwords were posted online. You know, from a Russian Bitcoin forum. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But do they have any like standard security precautions or mitigations or anything like that? Yeah, actually, Google advised users to implement strong passwords for their accounts, and of course, to upgrade to two-step verification as well as update their contact information used for Gmail account recovery, like your phone number or a secondary email address. So, in case something happens, you'll get a text on your phone or you'll get an email from another email address you have that something's going on which is great i have a gripe what's that my gripe is that with the uh two-factor authentication um you actually have a series of one-time passwords uh, 10 actually that they print out um you know uh by default and if you don't have your phone in a particular location wherever you're at let's say you left it in the car you're Mm -hmm. in the workplace whatever Mm -hmm. the case is you now have to use those one-time passwords, right? Right. Which is fine for those 10 times, right? <laughs> but what about for that 11th time? I, I've been in this situation where it's like I have no more one-time passwords. Now I can't get access to my Google account. So, you know, I still have it enabled now, but, you know, it, it that's one of those gripes I always have with one-time passes. Why don't you send them an email or a tweet? I'll actually do that. Awesome. Well, I had a question. Is uh, Gmail using strong passwords? I noticed some websites enforce str- the use of strong passwords and others don't. Um, is Gmail? Yeah, so when I uh, created a Gmail account recently, um, it didn't have the enforcement of strong passwords. Like, you know, I think it was like six characters and a number. It wasn't anything earth shattering like 15 characters, right? Uppercase, lowercase. However, you pack. can do that if you want to. That's actually encouraged. So. Yeah, you know, from a convenience standpoint, you know, you may have the shorter password, but with with our smartphones and stuff like that today, you know, hey, put in the long password, put it in once, save it in the settings, but I don't think that they've caught up to a standardized uh, enforcement of uh, password length and complexity. Awesome. What do you think about that, Vic? 
Yeah, I think uh, the word out on the street is strong passwords is the way to go. So all you listeners out there, definitely start using the strong passwords. Highly encourage it. All right, you heard that from Vic, Vic Tech. And you heard it first. So in other news, um, Home Depot has been hit by the same malware as Target. This is crazy, right? Breaking news. So on Tuesday, we kind of talked about this before. Uh, we reported it on the last podcast, but on Tuesday, Krebs on Security broke the news that Home Depot was working with law enforcement to investigate unusual activity after multiple banks said they traced a pattern of card fraud back to debit and credit cards that had been used at the same Home Depot locations since May of this year. So this is pretty interesting because we're seeing banks now corroborating events on the back end doing you know data correlation uh, for charges, and they're finding fraudulent charges on the back end. That, that's pretty interesting. That's a great thing. That's a great thing. Um, a source close to the investigation stated that an analysis revealed that some of the Home Depot store registers had been infected with a new variant of Black POS, a.k.a. Kaptoxa, which is a malware strain designed to siphon data from cards when they are swiped at an, in, an infected point-of-sale system running Microsoft Windows. Hey, wait a minute. How do you say that word again? Kaptoxa. How do you spell it? K-A-P-T-O. XA. Okay, we're going to have to look that one up. Hmm. Yeah, we're going to have to look that one up. I have it in front of me, though, so I'll just shoot it over to you and I am. Awesome. Yeah. So, Q AOL IM sound now. Bring. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, the information on the malware adds another indicator that those who were responsible for the as-yet-unconfirmed breach at Home Depot were also involved in the December 2013 attack on card Target that exposed 40 million customer debit and credit oh, card accounts. Oh, everyone remembers that. Everybody remembers that. A lot of people that shopped during Black Friday, right, um, were affected and had to get new cards. So that was, that was a big thing. But the Black POS was also uh, found on uh, point-of-sale systems at Target last year. What's more is that cards apparently stolen from Home Depot shoppers first turned up for sale on Resticator.cc, which is the same underground cybercrime shop that's sold millions of cars stolen in the Target uh-huh. attack. So, wow. you know, this is crazy. It hit all these, as we know, with Black POS, anything in RAM is decrypted, right? That's right. It's plain text. So they're just pulling these card numbers when they see a batch of 16 digits in an expiry. Bam, they got them. They, bam, they got it. But it would be interesting to see how they obfuscate it and send it over the network. I haven't looked in the Black POS that much um, or Captoxa. Um, I want to look at that to see how it goes back to their how server. it bundles and how it sends it back, how it sends down the payload. That's that's pretty interesting. As we know with Target, it was a HVAC, right? Right. Um, uh, HVAC uh, guy. Our HVAC shop had um, domain level of access, domain admin, and and could do all of those nefarious things once they uh, obtain those account credentials. But Cluesbury within this newer version of Black POS support the theory that was put forth by multiple banks that the Home Depot breach may involve compromised store transactions going back to at least several months. So our listeners, if you shop there during this time frame, May of this year um, onwards, you, you, you need to pay attention to this to see if you need to get a new card. Go back and look at your statements. Go back and look at your statements and don't just, you know, rely upon the bank to do event correlation and send you, you know, we've all gotten that call. Oh, your card has been compromised. We're going to send you a new card. Don't wait for that. Look for it. Get quick in something. I don't care. Get 
the output from your bank, there's you know some way you can pull that information out and actually look through the the charges. But um, in addition, the cybercrime shop Resticator over the past few days pushed out nine more large batches of stolen cards onto his shop under the name American Sanctions. It's labeled uh, label assigned to the first two batches of cards that originally tipped off banks to a pattern of card fraud that trades back to Home Depot. Likewise, the cars lifted from Target were sold in dozen batches and released over a period of three months on the same shop. So, you know, neither one of us here as a host or Vic, we haven't gone to any of this. You know, we haven't actually looked at it. This is second hand. We're reading a report on this. This is crazy. Um, doesn't really give me a lot of um, a lot of faith with using a card. So, I mean, Vic, how do you feel about this? Well, it almost makes me want to run out and, um, you know, pick up some uh, prepaid credit cards and start using that. And like a vanilla card a or idea. a rush card or a, something? A throwaway card? A throwaway, a throwaway card. card. That way, if the number is compromised, I mean, I'm, my my losses are, are, are minimal. Yeah, they're minimal at best. So you're transferring that risk to something that is disposable and it's not tied to your centralized account and your centralized income. So almost like a bastion host, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a bastion host on the network that's sitting there. It's a tertiary machine. It's not, you know, it's, it's it may be dual homed, but you're not putting all the eggs in one basket. The, and speaking of eggs in one basket, I mean, a lot of times we go to the grocery stores or Starbucks or you you hand your credit card over to the cashier. I mean, what's to say they can't write down the number? Or better yet, you're at a restaurant. Oh yeah, so so skimmers. Skimmers. You your card, yep. You can buy these. They're like black box, you know, they're little small black boxes. You basically can swipe the card on there. It pulls the mag strip data, which is the expiry and the 16-digit credit card number. It, hey, somebody nefarious could say, hey, server person, take this, swipe all the cards tonight. I'll give you 100 bucks." And they'll be eating that Sizzler 24-7. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, you know, so... They that's, walk away with your card, you see it. You, you don't, know, and they come back, have a nice night. Exactly. So you don't maintain control of that card. So uh, folks listening in, if there's one thing you want to take from this, if you don't trust the integrity, that is, if you don't trust the integrity of a card or you don't maintain full... Positive control. Positive control of it at all times... You want to transfer that risk out. You want to find something to mitigate that risk. And in this case, you know, it, w- it would be buying that, that kind of card. Because when something like this happens, I can say, ah, oh, crap, I have to go back to, you know, wherever I got, you know, that throwaway card from and get right. a new one and activate it and then just put some money on you it. You know, one way people could probably do that um, with the uh, the new iPhone 6 that uh, came out this week. One of NFC. Um, one of the uh, pay options was to pay with the phone. Yeah, through NFC, yeah. and uh, they also have an in-house passbook yeah. um, application. I use that every time I go to Starbucks. I mean, they have a scanner right there. Scans it, your phone. It scans my phone. I bring up, you know, that card. It shows me the balance and everything. You know, I pretty feel I feel pretty secure with that, just because of the fact that okay, if somebody takes the phone, unless they come up with some malware to steal that image, right, and they can replay that image, okay. You know, I've I beefed up the security controls on the phone. They have to um, open your phone first, but now it's a thumbprint, right? Yeah. So now with the iPhone six, which I just pre-ordered the iPhone six plus, Lucky. very excited. Apple, if you're out there, we could use a you know couple uh, couple free iPhone six pluses. We won't say no to it. But either way, I ordered pre-ordered mine, so that has the Touch ID sensor, and I'm coming from a non-Touch ID sensor phone. So 
you know, that's another thing for another segment, but yeah, just another option for uh, positive control and payment. Yeah. So um, our next story deals with an intruder installing malware on a healthcare.gov server. Uh, so earlier dun, this dun, summer, dun. Yep, earlier this summer, Wall Street Journal first reported that an intruder was able to install malware on the Obamacare online marketplace. Department of Health and Human Services states that the intrusion occurred on a test server that supports healthcare.gov and was designed to launch a denial-of-service attack against other websites when activated. The breach actually took place in July but was not discovered until late August. The Department of Health and Human Services states, and I quote, Our review indicates that the server did not contain consumer information, data was not transmitted outside the agency, and the website was not specifically targeted. Hmm. What do you think? Uh, two words: Drupal, <laughs> WordPress, and plugins. I added a third word there, but I don't know. Maybe it, they had incidents response and uh, I, went through the for, the forensics piece. I'm I'm gonna plead the fifth on this one just because you know I I don't know all the details. I'm gonna be upfront, but one healthcare. Apparently, they're safe. So yeah, when your information safe. Your information safe, right? Um, I, yeah, I, I, the air quotes right there. Right. So we really want to just err on the side of caution. It's one of those things where you're putting your data into a website that you may not maintain integrity of that data when, when it goes into that website, whatever it is, and you're relinquishing all control once you hit submit. So with health, healthcare.gov, that was a huge debacle. They had multiple government contractors working on it. And it, for the money that they spent, <laughs> it, it had a lot of security vulnerabilities, and that was reported through formalized reporting. Yeah, it was um, through you know Ver- Krebs on security, among some other things. So it, it's just one of those things where you kind of got to take it with a grain of salt. So, am I surprised? No, no, we're not surprised at all. I'm not surprised. Vic, are you surprised? Not surprised. I'm a little sad because healthcare is already hard enough to get, and then you know they're destroying the website. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just want. I don't want to get Rick rolled. <laughs> I just want to register for healthcare. You know, so um, definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, but you know, this is another aim at transparency, or another kind of stab at transparency yeah, per that's, se. That's good. If if organizations are aiming for that transparency, I can respect that. And in this case, it seems like they were making a an attempt at it. So. Um, also, this week, we had Patch Tuesday, and Microsoft released one critical security patch which affects its operating system and Internet Explorer. The critical flaw allows a potential hacker to activate remote code execution, which could install programs or monitor activities without a user's knowledge. Three other important patches were also released, including two DOS patches and one privilege escalation patch. The IE Bulletin MS1452 bundles fixes for 37 vulnerabilities, including one that fixes an active zero-day vulnerability, meaning the bug is already being harnessed by malicious attackers to compromise systems. Which means fix it now and in a hurry. (laughs) The flaw has been known for some time. The vulnerability was described in detail last year in the CVE 2013-7331. So that's all in the National Vulnerability Database. So if anybody, you know, sysadmins out there and things like that, that you know, are maintaining systems for an organization or enterprise environment, you want to get out and, and do an update. I understand it may be a little bit difficult because yeah. you may have systems that may break once you do the update, but, you know, have that 
field it, you know, test it before you field it. But this is definitely something to pay attention to, especially if it's already being harnessed. In addition, web administrators, you guys running Microsoft's ASP.NET should immediately look at MS14 tag 053. This repairs a bug that could be used for denial of service attacks where the server gets flooded with requests it cannot handle and thus can no longer serve its users. Although only marked as important by Microsoft, it should be treated with the highest priority by shops running ASP.NET. So the third bulletin is um, MS14054 that covers a hole in Windows task schedule that could allow malware to gain full administrative privileges. Root. Root, root. In effect, gaining full control of the machine to the malicious software. So that's definitely something to, to, to look at. That's MS14054. And then the final bulletin is MS14055. An address of the vulnerability and link server, which an unauthenticated user can send a malform SIP, which is a session initiation protocol packet, to the server that would initiate a DOS attack. Hey guys, I got to roll out. My All right, Vic, it's uh, nice having you here tonight, man. Hey man, it was good having you come through. Oh, okay. My, if I got to get home here soon. Otherwise, uh, if I don't make it home before the babysitter leaves, my wife is going to give me a denial of service. Oh, <laughs> you better get hopping, man. Uh, yeah, right. man. Thanks for stopping by. Okay. All right, see you next Later. week, Vic. Man, that Vic is something else. Yeah, he is. Pretty good to have him come through this week. So uh, we'll see him next week. Uh, hopefully he'll be able to grace us with his presence. All right. <laughs> so this next article comes to us from Edward Kovacs at securityweek.com. It's from earlier this summer, but it's something that I find very interesting, Matt. So it's about hackers attacking shipping and logistics firms using malware-laden handheld scanners. Have you heard about this? So this is like the scanners that scan barcodes? Yeah. Wow. That's about it. Okay. <laughs> I, thought those, I thought those were pretty basic. So China-based threat actors are using sophisticated malware installed on handheld scanners to target shipping and logistics organizations from all over the world. So the attack is called Zombie Zero. It's been analyzed by cybersecurity solutions provider TrapX, a company formerly known as CyberSense. Yes. <laughs> That's it? CyberSense? A company formerly known as CyberSense. According to TrapX, the attack begins at a Chinese company that provides hardware and software for handheld scanners used by shipping and logistics firms worldwide to inventory the items they're handling. The Chinese manufacturer installs the malware on the Windows XP operating systems embedded in the devices. Additionally, the threat is also distributed through the company's support website, the security firm noted in its report, which you can see in our show notes. Wow, so this is supply chain poisoning. Awesome, yes. <laughs> the scanners then transmit the data they collect, origin, destination, value, contents, anything else they can get in there. They transmit that through the customer's wireless network. Once the customer starts using the device, the malware immediately sends this information back to a command and control server located in China. Wow. So according to TrapX, the command and control server is located at an educational institution said to be involved in the Operation Aurora attacks against Google and which is physically located only one block away from the scanner manufacturer. So, wow. Wow. Is it polymorphic or anything like that? It's highly sophisticated and polymorphic. So in one attack they observed, um, 16 of the 48 scanners used by the victim were infected, and the malware managed to penetrate the targeted organization's defenses and gain access to servers on their corporate network. 
The companies that use the scanners install security certificates for network authentication, but you know what? What's that? The certificates are compromised because the malware is already present on the device. Wow. Man, this is crazy. So it's a mul- this is why they're calling it very sophisticated because it has multiple stages, multiple things going for it with it being polymorphic, with it compromising crypto keys mm-hmm. and digital certificates. So they obtain the trusted authenticated status on their victim's network. So they, they're, they're it. Yeah. They're the authoritative answer. Yep. And Kevin Bo- Bosek, B-O-C-E-K, he's the vice president of security strategy and threat intelligence at Venify. He told Security Week, by compromising cryptographic keys and digital certificates, Zombie Zero attackers obtained trusted, authenticated status on their victims' networks. So they're seeing this time and time again with ABT1. Coretto um, Mask. Yep, Coretto Mask, and now Zombie Zero. The rising tide in circumventing keys and certificates will only increase as more sophisticated evasion and takeover techniques are required as all businesses and governments wake up to the fact that they are being targeted and are already breached. Wow. This is crazy. So did the experts determine anything from that? Did they Um, steal anything? What were they targeting? um, They said that the threat group group targets servers storing corporate financial data, uh, customer data, and other sensitive information. But a second payload downloaded by the malware then establishes a sophisticated command and control on the company's finance servers enabling the attackers to exfiltrate the information thereafter big bucks wow yeah so this is this is has this has multiple stages to yeah, it it's very big very huge and uh, apparently um, lots of money involved so uh, the operation appears to be focusing on the shipping and logistics industry trapex said the malware had also been delivered to organizations in the manufacturing sector um, I'm I'm looking on something here but John Heimerl uh, senior security strategist at Solutionary told Security Week that uh, the reality is that pre-installed malware exists. Some of it is be is installed because a vendor's code base is compromised. Some of it is installed because sloppy or incomplete security practices. Some is installed in firmware either by companies who are specifically targeting other corporate information, or because the company is supporting nation-state directives. But Heimerl also added that the threat of pre-installed malware is unfortunately hard to detect. The best way to see it is probably through rigorous testing of hardware before it goes into production environment in an attempt to identify and isolate any hostile activity in a testbed. There are organizations that do an excellent job of creating a testbed. We talked about this earlier with the with pushing the patches right on Patch mm-hmm. Tuesday yep, and yep. fielding it um, or testing it before you field it. But that pretty much simulates their production environment. But it's relatively rare, rare because you have to set up another environment just for tests, just to do the test, like open up, open a Wireshark uh, packet capture, uh, anything else to see what's going in and what's going out of your network or device. No, I don't even think it's. I mean, that's definitely one component of it. But another piece is, let's say you have a business process and you have multiple servers out there. Right mm-hmm. now, I have to set up the same number of servers and put the mm-hmm. same development effort into that in a test environment. That's a lot it, of money. It's, it's a lot of money. It's pretty much a, a double multiplier. Well, what if we uh, did uh, hypervisors or did it in the cloud? Yeah, I mean, you could definitely put it on top of a hypervisor and um, pretty much orchestrate putting that same topology, that same um, deployment into another environment. That's definitely the way forward. But 
I think a lot of people are still thinking in traditional virtualization methods or um, the traditional brick and mortar, having a pizza box back in the data center and using that. But either way, the next best option is solid. It's real-time monitoring that may be able to, to detect the malware as it's activated, mm-hmm. allowing the infected organizations to take rapid mitigation actions. So that's recognizing, analyzing, mitigation, and actual uh, containerizing of the malware on the network. He said, uh, additionally, organizations can take care to use reliable equipment from well-known providers in an attempt to shrink their, shrink their potential exposure. So that's doing those vulnerability scans, penetration tests, or you know, more specifically, the vulnerability scans on the outside, doing the proper scans. So having the proper pub plugins enabled, um, whether it's a credentialed or non-cred scan, having that out there you know, is key. I think also um, having a good relationship with the manufacturer that you're purchasing the equipment from, the handheld scanners, uh, maybe there's a process they go through. Uh, so when you get it, it's tested and verified. ISO. Yeah. ISO. Uh, what, nine? Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could be 9001, right. right? It could be any one of those where they have some type of base certification that they're following that ensures us as the consumer that they're following best practices. Um, and actually have some type of configuration management process in place or, you know, some base level process that when they're making widgets, they're actually doing it in a standardized format and in a secure format. So all the widgets are standardized and uh, all the same. Yep. All right. So what's our next story, Matt? Next story is uh, Dire Zeus Malware. So Dyer is the name of the new variant of the immortal Zeus banking Trojan, right, that worries the cybersecurity experts. Hmm. This new strain doesn't limit its stealing activity to just user banking credentials, but it search for more searches for uh, customer information. That's, that's awesome, huh? Yeah, so it actually has logic <laughs> behind it. Nice. So Dyer has been detected for the first time in June. Several security firms detected a new Zeus variant and targeted attacks on major online banking services, including the Bank of America, NatWest, Citibank, RBS, and Ulster Bank. But Dyer works exactly like many popular banking Trojans, including Zeus. It implements hooking functionalities for the principal browser or principal browsers, or I guess you could say the popular browsers, like right? Including IE, right? IE, so Internet Explorer, Chrome, Firefox, and it's able to siphon that data from the uh, infected system. So Dyer, also known as Dyreza, which was discovered by security experts at CSIS in Denmark, as explained in my previous article, um, this was from the source that put it out, but you know, it used the browser hooking to defeat SSL and bypass the two-factor authentication mechanism used by banks to protect the customer accounts. The newer version of Dyer, however, has begun targeting the uh, popular cloud service Salesforce. So the threat actors seem to be interested in the customer information that the cloud contains. Unfortunately, as explained by M- Amy Lutwak, or Lutwak, the chief technology officer and founder of Adalom, other cloud services could be targeted by Dyer. So Adalom is a security as a service firm, um, or excuse me, SaaS security firm. So software as a service security firm vendor that discovered a malware-based attack against Salesforce.com users in February. The Zeus variant is used by the bad actors, and it implements the web crawling capabilities to grab that sensitive business data from the CRM. The attacks originated from Salesforce employees' home computer, this variant of Zeus Trojan crawled the site, created real-time copies of the user Salesforce.com instance that included all the company's accounts wow. data. Wow! So it's emulating this to the T. And it's at the person's house. Yep. 
So you think you're at home, you know, you got Alone. a, yeah, you got a cup of hot chocolate, coffee, you're sitting there, <laughs> you know, out. chilling out. Next thing you know, boom, right? You have uh, client data juice. being taken right there. Mm. You know, no bits are safe. All the bits are not safe, right? So um, it's clear that something is changing in the motivation of the malicious campaign. While the malware trends tend to specialize on siphoning banking credentials and financial data, in the case of Dyer, attackers are interested in harvesting the greater volume of data from the victims. An indicator suggests that the possibility that threat actors are interested in corporate espionage or to sell the data in the, upper, un, in the underground, which we've seen. Um, so is there a, a way that Dyer does this, a, a way of thinking for them? Yeah, so like the mode of operation... For the uh-huh. uh, there's two factors really okay. behind the mode of operation behind the uh, dire. So the financial institutions are hardening their systems, right? Mm-hmm. And for the criminals, the cash out process is becoming difficult to arrange. So services like Salesforce are a relatively easy target to compromise for hackers, okay. but corporate customer information is considered to be a profitable commodity commodity in the underground. Customer data could be used for targeted cyber espionage campaign against companies. Or simply to resell in the black market to other criminal gangs that specialize in the corporate. There's a lot of them, and they'll take that data, no problem. Here's some money. Nothing safe. So, um, since the package, uh, and this is quoted from, this is from Adalam. So, since the package contains a list of URLs being targeted, it looks like the creators of the variant simply added Salesforce.com URLs to the target list because it was easy. But unlike banking credentials, we're not currently aware of any cybercrime stores selling Salesforce.com credentials, which is a telling indicator. So we'll be seeing an increased number of malware whose sole purpose is adapted to corporate espionage and pulling this off. So, you know, we need to keep an eye out there and, and you know, just That be is some weary. nasty malware, Matt. But at the same time, it's ingenious. Yeah, so we kind of dissected it, looked at each of the stages, and, you know, really out there we have to look for network anomalies, right? So on the network... There's quote unquote normal traffic, right? Right, right. And then there's quote unquote non normal traffic, or, you know, could be malice or malicious traffic. So uh, we need to pay attention to that, most definitely. Definitely. So the next story deals with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, Apparently, they're affected by thousands of vulnerabilities, according to a memo from the Department of Commerce's Office of the Inspector General. The disconcerting news refers the findings of an audit conducted by the Department of Commerce's Office of the Inspector General. OIG. Yep. The Bureau has recently examined Joint Polar Satellite Systems, JPSS, ground system, discovering a series of major flaws. Oh, no. This is not good. No. They say, um, in an example of the next generation of polar orbiting environmental satellites, its ground system is used to collect data from several polar orbiting weather satellites and provide the information to the users. The JPSS infrastructure is also used to control and process data for current and future weather satellites. I have a question. So typically they have an impact level uh, associated with the um, confidentiality, integrity, availability, or overall degradation of service. Yep, Do they have an impact? They do. Guess what it is? Uh, I would probably rank this as critical or high. You're absolutely correct. It is ranked as high impact. Oh, my goodness. Because any attack could cause catastrophic effects on organizational operations and individuals. Did they respond back with a memo or something? Um, they did. It comes from Alan Crawley, Assistant Inspector General for Systems Acquisition and IT Security, to Catherine Sullivan, 
Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere and no Administrator, and it reads, and I quote, Our analysis of the JPSS program's assessments of system vulnerabilities found that since physical year 2012, the number of high-risk vulnerabilities in the system had increased by two-thirds despite recent efforts the program has taken to remediate these vulnerabilities. The number of high-risk vulnerabilities identified during the assessments conducted in the last couple of years is amazing. It rose from 14,486 in the first quarter of the fiscal year, 2012, to 23,868 in the second quarter of physical year, 2014. That's like over 100% increase. That's huge. If exploited, these high-risk vulnerabilities may make it possible for attackers to significantly disrupt the JPSS mission of providing critical data used in weather forecasting and climate monitoring, Crawley states in that memorandum. Wow, so let's give it up because the last time um, in our last podcast, we kind of displayed how the traffic control systems are vulnerable. Yeah. Now, apparently, the forecasting and climate monitoring, you know, uh, a meteorologist's job is hard already. Now we're making it even harder because they can't get data. Right. (laughs) Due to the nature of satellite systems and their life cycle, some of the vulnerabilities discovered by the security experts are difficult to fix. Fortunately, many of the identified high-risk flaws can be fixed with a little effort to apply minor alterations to the NOAA systems. For example, correctly configuring more than 3,600 instances of password and auditing settings. Oh, wow. So the, the it can't be admin password or NOAA password for a username password. Right. That's not acceptable, right? How, how did you guess my password? Man? I know, right? Oh, so... Uh, the vulnerability <laughs> assessment revealed that more than 9,100 instances of high-risk vulnerabilities identified by vulnerability scans, including A, out-of-date software versions or missing security patches, B, insecurely configured software, and C, the unnecessary user privileges within the operating systems and software. So A plus B plus C equals big problems for NOAA in this case. So more than 3,600 instances where password and auditing settings need to be configured in accordance with JPSS policy. Okay, we know that. Hopefully that can be done through group policy or something like that and pushed out to multiple nodes. But, you know, that's I don't think that's 3,600 individual instances where they have to go to 3,600 boxes no, to no. fix it. One box would probably be like 1,200 of those maybe. So unnecessary software applications need to be removed or disabled. Mm -hmm. Um, And three outstanding vulnerabilities identified by pen testing conducted in June 2012, right? Um, The experts at NOAA received the recommendation and the memorandum implementing for them uh, the necessary fix, uh, like has happened for the Heartbleed vulnerability that was remedied during the third quarter of 2014. So the Heartbleed OpenSSL vulnerability that everybody was shocked by and floored by, right? All right, and then GNU TLS and all of the other pieces uh, that fell into play for that. This is as it has as much impact as that. So, so hopefully, our friends at NOAA can remediate and mitigate um, all these instances, and hopefully, they have a cert there or some kind of incidents response, or maybe they have to uh, get a team in there. But hopefully, they can figure this out soon. But my question is, through FISMA or some formal process, um, DiaCap, something where they can do a formalized certification and accreditation process to where they can identify the deficiencies, fix the deficiencies through some type of risk management framework, and then have it operating without those flaws. 
that should be something that uh, should be elementary and, and shouldn't developing shouldn't that have system. been implemented already you know we'll save that for another day okay sure sure because sure. you know let's I, go to the next story we're, we're asking the questions hopefully they get <laughs> fixed because I need my you know weather I need I need my weather app to display the right weather I need to know what to wear for that day so um, all right so this next story is hacked Brazilian newspaper site targets router DNS settings that's Pretty interesting, right? So the website for one of Brazil's uh, biggest newspapers has been compromised with a malware that tries to change the victim's DNS or router DNS settings. So the web security company Security published a report yesterday. um, And so this was uh, September 11th. If you're listening, uh, we're recording this September 12th. So they published a report yesterday that um, Politica Estabados website was loading iframes that carried out a brute force attack against the victim's home router admin credentials. A similar style attack was reported September 2nd by Kaspersky lab researcher Fabio Asaloni, who said that he spotted similar redirects leading victims to phishing sites uh, posi- posing as banks in Brazil. So this web-based approach was something similar or was something new um, to Brazilian bad guys until now. And we believe it will spread quickly amongst them as the number of victims increases. So that was all written in the Secure List blog. Um, Asaloni said that uh, the attacks he spotted start with a phishing email that tricks the victim into clicking on a malicious link. Uh, with most of the victims coming from Brazil and the U.S., the link takes the victim to a site uh, hosting adult content with, while a malicious script runs in the background that could ask for victims' wireless access point credentials if it can't guess the home router password. So, Matt, you're in trouble there with that. I don't know, man. I mean, <laughs> in this case, yeah, you know, I, I make sure to change the passwords <laughs> and stuff like that, but... You know, it's throwing iframes in there. I I have a few applications uh, for ad tracking and pop up blocking, but you know, you never know. They can circumvent that. So definitely got to be on the watch for this one. So five domains and nine DNS servers were found in this attack, uh, hosting the bank phishing sites. And the methodology in a Stato attack is not much different than was previously seen uh, or seen in this one. So the payload was trying the user admin, root, GVT, and a few other usernames, all using the router default credentials or default passwords. And uh, that was a researcher uh, from Security. So the website is still compromised as of last night, so September 11th. And the iframe attacks are a popular hacker tool. So the uh, compromised websites generally load the iframes that redirect the victim's browser to a website either uh, that either silently downloads more malware onto the hacked machine or directs to a phishing website. So iframes are used to display um, any type of multimedia in that that same frame, that same uh, web window, so or browser window. So in this case, they're using that to either redirect the victim's browser to a website or silently download through an iframe injection onto the box. Wow. It's pretty sophisticated. So, well, not sophisticated, but it's picking on the user's um, normal, you know, activities. On normal pattern. So typically, um, Souza said, uh, and I believe he, yes, he's from Security. He said, we often spend time talking to web server, uh, infection and drive by downloads, but they rarely talk on the other nefarious acts that malicious actors can do. This is but one of an example of a wide range of actions available to the crackers. So, uh, Souza's analysis points out that the hidden iframe injection loads content from, and there's a site on here. I'll go ahead and put it up on the website. But it's uh, lasporis.com.ar. And then a second iframe 
is then, okay, just to be clear, we're not going to put the iframe on the website. <laughs> we're going to put the show notes uh, on there and you can see this for yourselves and, and start to look for that um, in your own environments and your own enterprise environments and make sure that this isn't going on. But a second iframe is then loaded and pulls content from a URL shortening service, vv2.com. So a third iframe then loads, and this is the one with the malicious JavaScript that redirects to a third website. That's what uh, Soza said. So the script is being used to identify the local IP of the computer, and then it starts guessing the router IP by passing it as variables to another script. So 192.168.11, right? It it starts looking at those same conventions to kind of guess that router IP and and then start brute forcing that password. Well, in this case, trying the attempts that are in the password, then it prompts the user with that. Um, with that prompt window to try to steal the password that way. So the hackers are well aware of the shortcomings of the home and small business routers. Soho, which we talked about last week, mm-hmm. they're always getting picked on. So most of which are woefully shy of appropriate patching levels and are likely protected only by a default or weak password. Because in a Soho setting, you know, convenience trumps security every time. All the time. So, you know, SMB shares and things like that that are within the network, yeah, those things are not protected. They're out there. NFS shares, SMB, whatever the case is. I need my data at home. I, I need, need my, my movies. Data, I and need I need my it now. Music, right? I need my pictures. So definitely have to be on the lockout. So um, uh, just a few more points on this. So the... Therefore, an attacker able to redirect the router traffic could carry out any number of additional attacks... Um, putting credentials, email, banking, and other types of transactions as, at risk. So at the end of 2013, extensive man-in-the-middle attacks were at the core of a rash of uh, Soho attacks where the DNS uh, settings were overwritten and DNS re- uh, requests were redirected to malicious sites. If I can control your DNS as an attacker, you know, I can point you to anything that I anything want you to resolve to. Anything I want to. you to see. <laughs> anything I want you to see. Um, so definitely have to be on the lookout. So Team uh, Simru published a report on the attack, citing evidence that more than 300,000 routers from leading manufacturers, including D-Link, TP-Link, and others were involved. The researchers said that the campaigns were similar to attacks uh, against a number of banks in Poland in the spring, but are likely to be conducted by separate hacker groups. Poland's M-Bank was targeted by similar DNS redirections attacks, which attackers used to steal credentials for online accounts. So at DEF CON last month, I was there, um, it was fun, and I'll be going back. The So Hopelessly Broken comp- contest enumerated the security issues found around Soho routers. Fifteen zero-day vulnerabilities were disclosed and demonstrated during the contest, leading to seven full router compromises and another attack that could have led to the corruption of the internal network. Tripwire researcher Craig Young was the big winner at the contest and told ThreatPost that the routers lacked server authentication instead of authenticated users on the browser. Compromising those passwords wasn't difficult. So, you know, we could do multiple stages um, through social engineering, right? I can sit there and try to grab the user creds by popping up a pop-up window and asking for the user pass, you know? And the attacker could also just try to guess those passwords. Once they have the password for the environment, typically that same password is used multiple times. So definitely have to keep an eye out for yeah. that. All right. Cool. All right, Matt. So um, what other important stories do you want to tell our listeners about? So US CERT warned of uh, vulnerability in Cisco baseband uh, or baseboard 
controller. So the U.S. CERT today released an advisory warning of vulnerabilities in Cisco's uh, integrated management controller, IMC. Mm -hmm. So Cisco released an update that patches the security hole, but the IMC is a baseboard management controller that oversees the embedded servers inside of uh, Cisco's unified computing system, the E-series blade server, so UCS. Yeah. Um, the vulnerability was reported in IMC's SSH module that an attacker could remotely exploit the condition and cause an underlying server to crash. Mm. So a huge denial of service, yeah. right? Um, the vulnerability is due to the failure to properly handle a crafted SSH packet. Um, hackers sending the packets to the SSH server running on the IMC could create a DOS condition on the device. The OS running on the blade would not be impacted, but um, it would you know, create a, a denial of service condition. So... The hackers use packet generators to send crafted uh, packets rather than regular network traffic to probe the network devices for holes. And um, so the E-series servers are deployed inside the um, integrated service routers generation 2 version E140D, DP, E160D, DP, and E140S, M1 and M2. Those are all affected. So be sure to go out there and... Again, Cisco said that successful exploitation of the vulnerability may cause the IMC of the affected blade server to become unresponsive, and uh, this will result in the administrator being able to being unable to utilize out-of-band features that the IMC provides, such as remote power on, power off, IP, uh, keyboard, video, mouse, KVM um, capabilities, remote media, and serial control access. So the device needs to be needs to be physically restarted to restore the IMC. So hopefully all our uh, Cisco listeners out there already patched this, but for those who don't have um, Cisco engineers on staff, you need to get those things patched if you're listening. Yeah, you may use your I, you may lose your iDRAC or ILO capabilities with being able to remotely control that you know, UCS. So yeah. um, a key flaw, another story I want to get into is um, uh, a key flaw enables recovery of files encrypted by Torrent Locker. Um, so Crypto ransomware, which is a relatively unknown phenomenon, um, a couple years ago has exploded into one of the nastiest malware problems for internet users. Hey, Matt, I've actually had some people that uh, fell for this, and um, they've got their personal pictures and stuff locked. Encrypted and locked? <laughs> yes. And then it comes up with the PayPal? <laughs> yes. It says, pay us. And so, one of the guys said, luckily I still have the, the thumbnails. I said, are you going to pay these guys? He's like, no. Wow, this is crazy. So um, there's actually a tool out there. Um, I haven't used it myself, but um, it's like Uncrypto Locker is the name of it or something like that. I don't know the exact name. We'll post it up on the show notes. But basically, um, some researchers found the private key that's used in the malware. That's good. And you can put um, you can put some data up on there. I think it's the key itself and uh, you know, can pull that stuff back and actually give you the, the key to unlock it. So anyways, um, with the uh, key flaw... CryptoLocker and CryptoWall have been siphoning money from victims for some time now, and uh, with TorrentLocker, they found that the creators made a key mistake that enables them to recover encrypted files in some circumstances. So uh, TorrentLocker is a separate strain of crypto ransomware from which CryptoLocker or CryptoWall, but its creators appear to have taken quite a few notes from the older variants. The look and feel is somewhat similar to CryptoLocker, but it uses a different kind of encryption scheme, and the underlying code isn't similar. So either way... um, like many other types of crypto ransomware, torrent lockers are distributed through spam campaigns. Once on a new machine, it encrypts the files and communicates with the remote CC server, and the victims are required to pay ransom to decrypt their files in Bitcoin, which is typical of this type of malware. Um, so just be careful. They said also the researchers found, the researchers found that um, given both the encrypted and plain text version of a file that is more than 2 megabyte, they could 
find the entire key stream used to encrypt it. Torrent Locker is nowhere near as widespread as crypto or crypto locker or crypto wall, mm-hmm. and researchers don't expect that to change that much. But either way, um, they believe that the use of this malware is not going to grow significantly due to a lack of distinguishing features, but the malware lacks distinguishing features. More sophisticated malware types are already available on underground markets. So just keep an eye out for that. And again, this is a good story so people can learn to back up their entire system, even at home, go get a time capsule, go get another drive, whatever it is, and do um, backups, uh, I don't know, once a day, uh, once a week, whatever, so you don't run into this uh, situation. So uh, two more stories. One story is Apache warns of Tomcat remote code execution vulnerability. So um, basically, uh, a long-time Apache committer, uh, Mark Thomas, said that a limited circum- in limited circumstances, a user could upload a malicious JSP, which is a Java server's page, to a Java server page to a server running Tomcat, and then later trigger the execution of that JSP. JSP shells can be used to execute arbitrary commands on the server. So be sure to patch um, to the latest um, Apache Tomcat versioning, and uh, yeah. You need to make sure that that is. So Apache is encouraging users to either upgrade to Tomcat 7.0.4.0 to remedy the issue or upgrade their Oracle Java to 1.7.0 or later to mitigate it. So the last thing that I want to talk about is um, cars. So information sharing on threats is seen as a key for automakers. So um, Chris Vasilek and Charlie Miller, they did you know a public demonstration at DEF CON showing how they could... Um, compromise the CAN bus network. Oh, on, yeah, I remember this in the, in the car. Yep, yeah. in the car, and they were able to uh, inject their own code. They were able to get on the CAN bus network and do some nefarious things. So um, the, let's see, automakers, they're famously slow to adapt and change the methods, but David Freeman, Friedman, who is the acting administrator of the National Highway Transport, Safe, Transport Safety Administration, says uh, he sets the vehicle safety standards in the U.S., said on Tuesday that manufacturers need to get ahead of the problem and begin talking to each other about information um, security issues. He said certain things about safety should not be all about competitive advantage. He said, according to the Detroit uh, Free Press, he says, uh, I think security is one of those perfect examples where sharing information will ensure that everyone is better off. So that's good. They're taking a step in the right direction. We'll do... um, We'll kind of uh, break it out and, and do a more in-depth section because I'm really into cars myself. I race cars and stuff like that. So um, that's something that I'm really interested in. And uh, we'll talk about that in a, a later uh, segment here on another show. All right. And that's all the time we have for this week. So you already know. Join us next week. Um, we'll have some more exciting things for you. Um, and that's pretty much all we have. Like to thank our sponsors, the Van Dyke Technology Group. Optimize security, maximize performance. Visit them on the web at vdtg.com. And we'd like to thank Vic for stopping by and for being one of our premier sponsors, Vic with VicTech.net. Thanks again to both of our sponsors, and we will see you next week. 